praise in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. The following is a sermon recently preached at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this message. Well, the story continues today. The setting of the story this week is the second banquet of Esther, in which she humbly requests that her life and the lives of her people be spared. We can look now and compare King, the king's feasts at the beginning of Esther with Esther's feasts. The king's feasts were a celebration of the king's glory and they were, they were full of his pride. He was prideful. The fallout of the king's feast was actually his humiliation. He, he lost his queen. He banished her. The fallout of Esther comes before the queen, king in humility. She comes before the king in humility, humbly beseeching the king for her life and her people's lives. And the fallout of Esther's feast is that the king grants her life and the Jews, and the traitor, the enemy, is slain. Esther gives some powerful arguments to the king in her requests. The king asks Esther, what do you want, Esther? I'll give it to you. He's, he's looking upon her with favor. He's been looking on her with favor. And he continues doing so. He asks what she wants. And she comes before him with a request that he would not have guessed in a thousand years. She asks that her life be spared. This woman whom he loves, whom he adores, who he has raised above every other woman in the kingdom, is asking that she not be put to death and that her people be saved. And if that's not enough, she goes on and, and, and states that if it, if, if it was only that they'd been sold into slavery, she wouldn't even have complained. She wouldn't have petitioned the king. Even though it would have been worse for the king, and there's no way that the enemy could repay the king for his loss in the subjection of the Jews, she would, not, she would have held her tongue. But the enemy of Esther... was seeking her life and was seeking the lives of the Jews. So she brings her petition before the king and asks that her life be spared. The king is incredulous. Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? This reminds us of David's response to Nathan when Nathan gives him the the parable of the sheep. After David had slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, David says, This man deserves to die. Who is he? And Nathan says, You are the man. And in a very real sense, that is true of this, this story here too. Ahasuerus had given Haman permission to proclaim the destruction of the Jews. Esther doesn't focus on that. There is a, a specific enemy here. It is Haman. And Esther does not mince words. She does not 
soft foot when it comes to pointing the finger. She states the problem simply and straightforwardly. The enemy is this wicked Haman. He's right here. Let him answer for himself. Ahasuerus displays wisdom at this point, and he sets out to the garden in his wrath to calm, calm down. This is the first time that we've seen Ahasuerus do this. He is angry. He is filled with wrath, and he goes out to the garden to contemplate what the right thing to do is here, how to proceed, how to exercise justice. And Haman, as a coward, begs for his life from Esther. Haman falls down at Esther's feet and begs for his life. This is an interesting contrast from the princes of Persia in chapter 1. At chapter 1, at the king's feast, the princes of Persia had the king's ear. They persuaded the king to banish the queen and to make a proclamation concerning the authority of men over women and their households. But Haman is falling down at the feet of a woman and begging for his own life. Haman's pride is caught up with him. He has seen himself as the highest in the land. The only person whom he had left to envy was the king himself. And he did remember his request for the king when the king asked how the king should honor one whom he chose to honor. He asked for the king's crown, the king's horse, and the king's robe, thinking that he would be the one who would get to wear them. Haman's problem is that he is not the king, however much he would like to be. He is not, and his pride has now caught up with him. The king comes back and sees Haman begging for his life at Esther's feet, and he accuses Haman of assaulting the queen. And then in one of the most poetic of poetic justices in history, The reversal that was initiated in Haman's and Mordecai's fortunes last week is now completed. Haman is sentenced to hang on the very tree he had prepared for Mordecai. And Haman's belongings are entrusted to Mordecai. And Mordecai is given the ring which Haman had been given before. This is poetic justice. This is God having his enemies fall into their own traps, into the pit that they dig, having the stone roll back on them. Also, Ahasuerus is in the process of learning that there is blessing in blessing the Jews. God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the story, Ahasuerus has gone from boasting and bragging, and, and consequently losing his queen. Then he elevates Esther, only to place her in the line, place her life on the line, 
in Haman's plot against the Jews and perplexing the whole city of Shushan. At last, God has opened his eyes to the wickedness of Haman and he exercises his wrath on Haman. The king exercises his wrath on Haman, establishing justice and righteousness in the land. And as we shall see in the rest of the book, he elevates the Jews from a fairly obscure position to a favored position in the Persian Empire. So we are now at a high point in the story of the book of Esther. The main villain has been recognized. He's been publicly denounced. And he's been violently executed. On top of this, our heroine has been vindicated. The preservation of God's people has been initiated. And Mordecai has been exalted to a high position of influence in the kingdom. This is an excellent moment for us to pause and consider one of the challenging aspects of our faith. It amounts to a moral problem. Essentially it is this. Christianity is a peaceful religion. It values love and mercy and forbearance and forgiveness and grace. But frequently in our faith story and in our text, we see the violence of story. We see the violence of language and we see the violence of life. For instance, at this point of the story, we see Haman hung on the gallows that he erected for Mordecai. And we want to do a fist pump. We want to do an end zone dance. We want to celebrate the destruction of Haman, the enemy of God. How is this a peaceful reaction? The imprecatory psalms, they pray for the destruction and the downfall of enemies. So how can we maintain that our religion is a religion of peace? Didn't Jesus say that he came not to bring peace, but the sword to set father against son and mother against daughter? But Jesus also said to turn the other cheek and love your enemies. So how do we reconcile these things? How do they jive? Let's take a moment and look at some imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms get their name from the word imprecation, which means to speak curses. They pray for the destruction of evildoers and deliverance from enemies. Many of the psalms speak of the sovereignty of God and, and, and they speak indicatively. They state the way it is. They state the results of wickedness and of evil de doing. They say that God will punish them. Three psalms specifically are related to our text this morning. In Psalm 7, verse 14 to 16, we read, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. So says the psalm. Psalm 37, 12 to 15. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. 
The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Psalm 94, verses 20 to 23. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. So God exercises wrath on evildoers. He turns their own plotting against them. Another important theme in Psalms that seek the destruction of the wicked is a faithful and biblical response by the psalmist. For example, in Psalm 7, verses 3 through 5, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to whom to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yea, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. There is a constant laying bare of the soul, which David does. He opens his soul to God. He invites God to inspect his heart. If I have done this, if there's iniquity in me, punish me for it. I deserve it. David opens himself to be searched by God. And when he is found wanting, he pleads for mercy and quick justice. For instance, when, when he was facing the choice of three evils because of his sin, when he counted the armies of Israel, the prophet came to him and said, you have sinned, you will suffer the consequences, you have three choices. You can fall into your enemies for, for three months, into the hands of your enemies. You can, you can fall, suffer the famine for three years, or you can suffer the, 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 the wrath of God for three days. David chose to be placed at the mercy of the Lord's angel of death, rather than enemies or famine. He did this specifically because the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. And this also is a constant and important theme in the imprecatory Psalms. David seeks the mercy of the Lord in reference to his own shortcomings. And he entreats the Lord to not remember his past offenses. Now, for an example of an imprecatory psalm, straight up, hardcore, we have Psalm 109. <coughs> psalm 109, starting at verse 6. Set a wicked man over him. He's speaking of, of his enemy. This is, this, is, this is the kind of thing that David prays to God that will happen to his enemies. 
Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds, and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any, uh, let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and the needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him, for a belt which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. David is obviously not afraid to speak his mind in prayer. And while he spends most of this psalm asking the Lord to punish his adversary, he opens and closes the psalm with praise for God. Verse 1, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. And in verse 30 and 31, I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him with the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. So David opens and closes the psalm with praise for God. David never expects deliverance outside of God's will or God's sovereign plan. And he prays for God to fulfill his promises and exercise his attributes of justice and vengeance on the basis that God has revealed himself to David as his God and as his protector. God is the one who exercises vengeance. God is in covenant with David and with Israel. So how do we reconcile these things with blessed are the peacemakers? How do we reconcile these things with turn the other cheek or love your enemies? Well, Christian peace is not a wimpy peace. It's not limp-wristed. It's not weak. It is a powerful, effective peace that passes understanding, and it rests on the sovereignty of God and on His inexorable will. The Psalms declare, David calls for the fact that God will accomplish His vengeance and will accomplish His justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. God's enemies will suffer and die. Sometimes He will use the hands of His people in executing justice. For instance, when David slew Goliath, or the armies of Israel took on the, the natives of Canaan, and other times, God will allow 
his enemies to fall into their own traps, like Haman, or to suffer at the hands of pagan kings. But the result is always the same. Ultimately, God will accomplish his vengeance and his justice. At some point, even if it is not till the final judgment, the wicked and the righteous will be rewarded for their deeds. This sovereignty of God is a fine justification for a peace that the world cannot understand. God's sovereignty is a fine justification for a peace that the world cannot understand. And this is because that peace supersedes the fear of death. Christians have made their peace with God. They fear the one who has the power to send both body and soul to eternal punishment. But their fear is not fright. We're not afraid of Him. It is a trembling awe and a trembling respect. This the world cannot understand. This the world cannot understand because the world refuses to bow the knee to God and to submit to Him. Because God is sovereign, on this basis Christians can have the fortitude to turn the other cheek. Knowing that they will be vindicated. Knowing that they will be justified. Knowing that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. On this basis, Christians can stand strong on the battle lines. On this basis, we can wait on the Lord for His salvation and not lift a finger against those anointed to bear the sword, even if they abuse it, even if they abuse us. The worst they can do is kill us. But we've made our peace with God. This is not something we need to fear. The best we can hope for is that our witness will display our hope. And we will be given the opportunity to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So now that we've looked at Esther 7 and the imprecatory Psalms, what can we learn from them? What application do they have? They teach us how to deal with sin and with enemies. Remember, Esther doesn't mince words when it comes to pointing the finger. Esther is not shy about accusing the enemy. The enemy is this wicked Haman. Thus begins God's salvation and deliverance. The enemies of the Christian faith are three in number. The devil, the world, and our own flesh. When we are fighting against enemies, we must clearly define the enemy so that we can engage him. 
So sin is an enemy. We should not be, call, be afraid to call sin what it is. When the light of the gospel, when the light of God's word shines clearly on the darkness, foolishness, and wickedness of sin, there is no place for sin to hide. Elevate God. Elevate His holiness. Elevate His righteousness. Call sin, sin. If you are engaged in a battle with a particular sin, you would do well to name it. Name it. The enemy is this wicked laziness. This wicked lust. This wicked jealousy. Color it in all of its ugliness. Don't make excuses for it. Don't camouflage it. Nail it to the cross and be done with it. Sin is an enemy. Call it what it is and then engage it. Fight it. Shine the light of God's word on it. Next, wicked men are enemies. When good people stand up for justice and oppose wickedness, wicked men don't get away with their wickedness. Take time to recognize the players in the story. Learn from the lessons of the Psalms and humbly test your hearts, entreating the Lord to open your eyes to your own blind spots, Allow Him to purge you and purify you in trials. But when you've assessed the situation, when you've recognized a truly wicked man, pray to God for deliverance from him. Pray to God for deliverance from him and his ilk. Seek his downfall. Work to establish righteousness. Stand up against injustice by entreating the favor of lawful authorities like Esther. And when you do, don't fear to name names. Trust God for the outcome. If the lawful authority is the wicked man, then blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Proclaim the gospel and win a convert in displaying the peace that passes understanding. Christian history has given us many martyrs who have done precisely this. And God will execute vengeance. He will vindicate their blood. Finally, the devil is an enemy. He loves to attack us and besiege our hope and our faith with doubts and fears. He loves to cloud the issues and he hates the clarity and sheer brightness of the gospel, of God's word. When you are assailed in your faith, when you feel the spiritual pressures which war against your soul, run to the feet of Christ. Run to the Word of God. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And that armor is truth, clarity. That armor is righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. When we resist the devil, he flees. These are the weapons by which we wage war against our enemies. 
But God is still the author. He is writing his story in our battles. When he destroys an enemy of ours and when he executes his fiery wrath against wrongdoers, he vindicates us. Esther and Mordecai were vindicated by God's wrath against Haman. Their righteousness and their innocence was declared and revealed. So shall it be for all of God's people, because God will keep his promises to, uh, to us. One last thought. As Christians, we are to love our enemies. This means that we are to have compassion on them. We all started out with hearts of flesh. And we all ought to understand the maxim, There, but for the grace of God, go I. Each one of us has the natural inclination and the potential to be a Haman. As believers, we truly understand what it is to be forgiven. And thus we should be ready to forgive, and forgive truly and deeply. Christ has done this for us, and thus we do for Him. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon that was recently preached at Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this message, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.